Hey, welcome to Hot Takes. I'm your host, James Scott, here to analyze anything and everything interesting. Let's dig into today's topics. Let's go. Let's go. So we are in the stretch run for talking about the player list. I mean, we're in the first week of the season, and one of the big things that in the past few years, I wanted to get the list done by opening day. However, what I'm starting to understand is as you know, off season is a massive amount of time to not have eyes on a ball player. So players' physiques, players' swings, these things may have shifted a little bit. So what I've tried to do between spring training and now is get my eyes on as many players that I've you know that I'm I'm curious about. Like, oh well, you know, is he going to go this way? Is he like this? You know, what's going on with him? Progression, regression, you know, staying steady. Um, so getting my eyes on the swing. And the eyes on the physicality, I feel like is is a major final step, because everything else is based off of analytics. If the swing just immediately looks off, I mean that can tank a player's entire year. Like Donaldson's swing looked off for a a large portion of the beginning of of last year, and it affected his whole entire season. So, looking at people's swings and what's going on with their body, I think is a very important thing that can't really be done in an off season can only be done at the very beginning. So getting the list done now, it's it's the right time. So before we jump in to finish off the outfield list, I do want to have a, a couple – I have a couple announcements. Uh, I haven't told you about this, Chris. So every week I make some adjustments. And because I've been putting in so much work watching so many different ball games, there have been more adjustments to the list than – in a very long time because this is it this is crunch time after this week it's done the list is done there'll be tweaks during the year this is the list as it projects moving forward as of the start of the year so it's a it's a it's an important list for documentation at very minimum um now here are some of the guys that came off the list tomoya mori uh a lot of people going from japan coming over to the u.s they have trouble um there's not enough info for me to say that, hey, you know, just coming straight over, he deserves to be immediately on the list. Certainly, he would be in consideration. But, but it's very hard for players to transition their skills. And essentially, he's just a bat first player. He's not a great catcher. He's not a terrible catcher. He's not a good base runner. Um, so those are things that are kind of juggled in in moving him off the list um marco luciano he stayed in a ball for years on end he's starting to have trouble versus uh non-fast balls um his body's filling out he's definitely not a shortstop anymore he actually is kind of projecting towards corner outfield which is you know why a few years ago i compared him to justin upton but now he's having back problems so he's off the list uh jorge soler i noticed a very small decline it's it's barely observable but it is at least five seasons long, four seasons long. Um, so I took him off the list. Didi Gregorius, I ended up taking him off the list because I just think no team's going to give him another shot. And I think at this point in time, if he doesn't get it, if he doesn't join a big league team at some point in the next like 60 games, it's going to be really hard for him to get his bat speed and everything up to par because it's not like he was a tremendous bat speed guy before. Um, Nico Horner. He looked like he was progressing, and in a lot of ways, he is progressing. However, the 2021 season was a completely false year. Every month of the year, he got worse. And last year, 
expected statistics aren't weren't exactly where you want them to be. So I think moving to third base, it's certainly going to give him the opportunity to focus on the bat, but I'm going to need to see more offensively before I put him on the list, even with him being young and him lowering the strikeouts as consistently as he, as he's been able to do. Uh, Andy Pajes, he's one that came off the list literally last night because yes, he has tremendous strength and he hits the ball off the bat. You know, he doesn't put anything on the ground, but therein lies the rub. He hits the ball at too high of an angle. And for a righty, that that makes him susceptible to hard stuff from righties coupled with good breaking balls. I think if he stays in double A, some of those issues will become really clear. I think we saw a little bit of it last year in double A. But I think it's going to be even clearer multiple times through double A. And if it's not, I think what's going to happen is at the big leagues, velocity at the big leagues, the stuff of big leaguers is going to stop him from being able to produce consistently versus righty pitchers. He will light up lefties, but you're still talking about a guy who's a corner outfielder. So if he's lighting up lefties and he's giving you 20 homer power, maybe you can use him like they use Adam Duvall, but you know, understand that there's going to be less defense, more offense. Uh, Tyler Sodestrom, I need to see that he can hit in, in double A and triple A. I've seen a lot of swing and miss issues. For a guy that doesn't have really any sort of defensive use, he's not really a good base runner. He's a catcher that's moving to the outfield because he can't catch. And he can hit, but I'm going to need to see a lot more hitting if I'm going to take a guy like that, you know, who that's his only skill. He's, he's not done it in the high minors. Uh, at his age, he's, he's, not, he's not a spring chicken. Um, I need to see more before I move him up the list. Uh, Junior Caminero, he's a guy who is kind of edge of the list jumped on the list, fell off the list. I think I'm going to leave him off the list. He's one of those guys where if his body goes one way, his swing goes one way, things get really bad. But if they go the other way, you might be talking about a 25 homer hitter. So for now, he's off the list. Eric Brown Jr., unbelievable athlete, shortstop, um, unique swing. If he can time pitches, he's going to be a tremendous ball player. But as a righty with that swing, I don't know how he's going to do versus high-end velocity. I, I think he might be able to put the bat on the ball, but I don't think there's any power here. I don't think he could possibly become a pole hitter ever. So that makes it so that his his, his ceiling's fairly low, even if the floor is relatively high as a super utility, if you will. So all of those guys are off the list. It's about eight, eight minuses, so that's not insignificant. Um, the rest of the guys are, are moving between on the list to honorable mentions, but we will do a full podcast on the honorable mentions in good time. So without further ado, let's jump into the rest of the outfielders that, well, we didn't cover in the first time around. So first off, we're going to start with the Orioles. Kyle Stowers. Kyle Stowers is a guy who's worked the count significantly deep all throughout the minors while, to be honest, moving fairly quickly, uh, basically one year at each level. Um, He has a couple years, I think, where he went multiple levels. But the thing that he did last year in AAA was reduce his strikeouts to a manageable manageable rate. His His swing mechanics have improved drastically. I don't see a guy who's going to be a superstar here, but what I do see is an everyday player who you could pencil into your number seven spot in the lineup, and he'd be a perfect fit on a World Series team. Helps he's a lefty. Um, But reducing his strikeouts 
puts him onto the list. I think Baltimore Orioles fans will be very surprised at how good he does unless he goes through the same transition that he did in the minors at the big leagues where he first comes up, walks a bunch, strikes out a ton, and then as he's in the level, lowers the strikeouts. And personally, if that was the trajectory that things go, where he makes that adjustment at the big leagues, that makes me excited because he'd be playing at the same level for a full season. after Two years in a row at the same level for full seasons. If you have a guy who's already improving at that level, a lot of the time that keeps going, that steamrolls. So there is a possibility that if he does have to go through that growth of strikeout to lower strikeout and more pull power, that that could actually help him with his development. And there is a possibility that he could be one of the five bats in the middle of the order for this next future, you know, contending Orioles team. He's not Rutschman. He's not Mount Castle. He's not Henderson. But like I said, if you put him like in the seventh spot, you know, he fits right in, fits right in. So Kyle Stowers, he's a guy that we didn't have on the list. Well, he is on the list, but we didn't address him last time around. Now we have, this guy's got a great name. You want to talk about a baseball name? <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of him. I probably have mentioned him in passing, Chris. Who? Let's see. Travis Swaggerty. No, what Swaggerty? What? Yeah, Travis Swaggerty. You know, he was considered to be a top-of-the-draft talent and a five-tool talent at that, someone who was fast, could play center field, so very good defensive, um, who could drive the ball, who had a good batting eye, you know, just just fairly well-rounded, solid, polished skill set, type of skill set where he should be able to come up to the big leagues really quick. Well, there was a lot of things that got in the way. There was injuries. There was there being no minor league season. There, there was a lot of different things that got in the way of him getting consistent playing time. However, he did very good in AAA at the end of last year. And he lit spring training on fire with his background. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I could be wrong, but I think he's in the Pirates starting lineup. Oh. You know, the Pirates, they're not, they're not a good team. However, in their division, they have a strong shot at finishing in either and the highest they'll finish is likely in third. If everything works out, they'll finish in third in their division. Um, if that does happen, if the everything working out happens, he's going to be part of the everything working out. I don't see a guy who's going to ever be able to hit 25 homers. I don't see a guy who's going to hit 260, but could he hit 245? Yeah, that sounds about right. Could he hit about 15 homers a year? Yeah. Is he going to steal 30 bases? No. Is he going to steal 20 bases? Yeah. Is he a good defender? Yeah. Do I feel like I have to worry about injury risk? Debatable, but not if he's in a platoon. And given his handedness, you could put him in a platoon. Um, and, you know, if he ends up figuring things out with Pittsburgh, you can only imagine what would happen if you moved him to a lineup with, like, actual protection or a ballpark that worked in his favor. Um, I think that... I think that the floor is fairly high with him. He's an everyday player at minimum. 
but the ceiling is for a well above average platoon player. Mm. Strong side of the platoon, so he's still getting full seasons. Um, and well-rounded, very well-rounded. College player, you know. Uh, then we have Jaron Duran. Jaron Duran, Boston Red Sox, can't field. Which is odd, because he is insanely fast. He's got at least 70-grade speed, maybe 65, 70-grade speed. And yet, he can't field. Thankfully, he's playing for the Red Sox. The Red Sox have the green monster, which you know creates a situation where there's not very much ground for a fielder to cover in left field and a situation for you to be able to play the ball off the wall and make use of meh arm strength. Um which certainly he can do. The only issue is that the Red Sox also have Verdugo and Yoshida, and neither of them is a center fielder. So Duran, even though he's with Boston, is likely, unless there's a trade, not going to be hidden by the Green Monster. However, Boston now has a lot of lineup protection. They can let him just play every single day. and. You know, I don't think that the, Bo- that the Boston Red Sox think that they're going to contend for a championship. I think a lot of what they're doing is kind of setting things up. And if I'm reading the terrain right, and that's what's going on, then Duran is likely going to be in center field for them. You know, Verdugo with his arm would be in right. Yoshida, you know, to protect him and let him focus on the bat would be in left. And, you know, I, I think Duran is going to eventually hit at the big leagues. That's that's. At least league average, maybe a touch below. Okay. Or at minimum in a platoon, something like that. But if what he can work on this year is being able to use his speed to play center field, even if it means playing back and then running in, using the speed to run in and closing speed and that type of thing, he needs to figure it out. Because outside of that, I don't think he has the bat for most corner outfield spots. I just, I, I, I think that as a leadoff type, Center field would work so well for him. But if Boston trades Verdugo, well, then he's ticketed for left field. So fast has not transitioned the hitting from the minors to the majors, sure. But he is in the right spot to develop. Boston is very good at developing these types of guys. He's athletic uh, hitting types of guys. Um, Okay, so now we have, oh boy, the Martian. Jason, yes, two S's. The main, yeah. Jason. He is, and I, I, you know, I've been hyped about him since the first videos I saw because you know, this guy, 16, 17 years old, had a big league body, not just a big league body, but like the ideal big league body. Swing from, swing from both sides of the plate was just dynamic, athletic. You know, it reminded me a lot of, those early videos of Luis Robert swing. And he just blew me away. He blew me away. Um, And then over the next year or two, um, he lost a lot of the definition and, you know, form that he had had. um, And he just kind of got bigger. Um, And then in the years since, he's gotten more defined. The bigger has gotten more and more toned. Um, I got to see him in person for the first time in the Arizona Fall League. And while he didn't really produce too well in the AFL, 
it's very clear that that's a big league swing. It's a big league body. The exit velocity is impressive. Um, he's hitting big moments um, like in futures game and, and situations like that. Um, I'm not going to fool myself and compare him to the people he was initially compared to when he was 16. He was initially compared to Mickey Mantle, uh, Mike Trout, Bo Jackson, which is insane. However, is there a high probability that he's going to hit 25 home runs a year for at least six years in a row? Yeah. Is there a high probability that he's going to be consistently stealing around 15 bases a year? Yes. I'm not talking about a guy that's stealing 25 bases a year, hitting 30 homers, but if you're hitting 25 home runs a year with 15 stolen bases, I think his batting average is probably going to be somewhere around 280, which is respectable especially when you realize it's probably going to be about 300 versus versus righties because he's a switch hitter. He's not a center fielder. He's going to be a good corner outfielder, a adequate corner outfielder. Um, how many doubles do I think he's going to hit? I don't think he's ever going to hit less than 35 doubles. How many homers do I think he's going to hit at maximum? And again, this is, this is the, 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 the bottom projection for Dominguez. The least number of home runs that I could see him hit at peak is 26. The most home runs that I could see him hit at peak is probably like 36. This is a guy who's really, really, really built. And uh, he's also really, really, really young. You know, your physicality ends up finishing itself off right right around the age of 28. And he's got a good six years, at least, I think. Uh, before he gets there and with his you know strength already being what it is if things work out like i said that's the floor the floor is a 25 home run bat who steals 15 bases and never hits less than 36 doubles um who, who bats 280 you know the ceiling you're talking about one of the best players in the game um I would definitely you know say that he's a lot more ceiling wise more power than stolen bases but outside of the power and the stolen bases, the numbers that he could put up if everything does work, it's not that different than Andrew McCutcheon's best years. Like I said, you got to you know change up the, the the stolen base power thing because McCutcheon stole so many more bases than Dominguez ever will. But I think that Dominguez could hit more home runs than McCutcheon ever did and more consistently more than McCutcheon ever did. Um so Dominguez, he, he's, a, he's a total outlier. We don't find players who are that good at that young of an age. And yes, he's gone through some body fluctuation that's made it so like, okay, he's not Mike Trout or Mickey Mantle or Bo Jackson, but we've got to remember those are the best ball players of all time. So uh, you see what I'm saying? Uh, you can't really compare a guy to the best ball players of all time and then get upset yeah. when he's only one of the best players in baseball. You see what I'm saying? It's like, oh, he didn't turn into, you know, a, a Hall of Famer, but like, yeah, you the, just can't, you, know, com- you can't compare people with best each other. Player yeah. in the sport. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So Dominguez, I, I, I'm really excited about seeing the peak because currently at this level, I think he could just walk into the big leagues and already hit. I think that they're having him go through the motions in double A AA and triple A just as a precaution. I think he proved in, 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 in spring training that he's big league ready, but I don't think they want to mess with him. 
because if they mess with him, maybe they get a Melky Cabrera situation where he kind of becomes an okay player for a lot of years, has like three or four absolutely insane seasons, and then just kind of peters out like Melky did. They aren't that different profiles, assuming everything goes wrong with Dominguez. Like, that's his floor. His floor is Melky Cabrera, which, again, it's a pretty high floor. Melky Cabrera had a few years where he had 25 homers, 200, 200 hits, and a well above three, 315, 320. I think it might have even been in the 330s batting average as a switch hitter. So if that's the worst that you're going to get or the worst that you're going to get is, like, Yon Mankata in a good year, like, Dominguez is going to be a stud. If that's the worst peak you're going to get, you're going to be fine. Um, okay. Another one that's interesting. He's going to end up playing second base. I don't like his defense there. I think second base defense a lot of the time converts much better to left field. And that is Michael Massey. Michael Massey was – there's no tools here, okay? This is not a profile that is going to last in the big leagues for very long in all likelihood without some drastic changes. That being said, this is a very polished player. This is the type of player who's going to do very good right now and then, you know, kind of be a little bit above league average a year from now and then league average. If you are going to have this player on your team and you're not going to contend, you need to trade this player. And if you're not getting enough of a return in trading them now, you give them two months to just smoke the heck out of everything they see, and then you trade him. And I think that that's what's going to go on with him. I think that there wasn't enough interest in the offseason for a polished player like him. I think he's going to go off for the first couple months of the year, and then he's going to get traded to a playoff team that needs a hitting lefty second baseman. But that's kind of just what he is. He's a very polished player. It's similar to like, you know, I mean, I won't say they're, they're not going to put up anything close to the numbers of each other, but it's an AJ, it, it, not an AJ Pollock, sorry, a Joe Panic. I was talking about AJ Pollock earlier. It's a Joe Panic situation where you have a guy who's first year in the league. It's like, oh, he's hitting for batting average and he's getting on base and there's enough power here, you know? And, you know, he's balancing out the team with a lefty bat. Like that, that's Michael Massey to a certain degree. But the difference is, is that Michael Massey's a different, different group of skill sets. Whereas Panic was all about contact, you know, hitting for, for batting average. Michael Massey gives away a little bit for batting average to hit for more power. Um, so I think he's going to do very good this year. I think he might even be a top 100 player this year, surprisingly. Um, but he's never, he's never going to do anything like that again. Like when we named Alec Burleson and Cal Mitchell last, last time we, we recorded. It's a similar situation. He's going to have one really good year and then, you know. Uh, okay. Now... Here's where things get a little bit interesting, okay? I, I think, Chris, I mentioned this to you that um, I'm, I'm including people in, in the upcoming draft, right? You did. You, you mentioned it before. There's a guy named Colton Ledbetter. I know. That's his name, L-E-D-B-E. We got, we got all the crazy names today. I, I know, right? And, you know, I haven't gotten my eyes on him as much in the field just being completely truthful. However, Ledbetter has a fantastic swing, fantastic swing mechanics. 
it's very clear to me that he's going to hit at the big league level. All he's going to need to do is stay healthy and slowly show that he can hit at each level of the minor leagues. He's going to be taken near the top of the draft next year, and I think he's a high probability everyday big league. But the swing mechanics are honestly fairly pretty from the highlights that I did find. And it wasn't just like, oh, well, there's only a couple highlights. I know he should show up. No, this is talking about all of these um, mock drafts that people do uh, before the the June draft comes around. Um, Well, the mock drafts, well, they have him going very high. So he was one of the players that I had to get very many looks at. And, you know, here are a lot of different scouts takes on. And I think he's a high probability big leaguer. I don't know if there's a superstar ceiling there. Um, but Colton led better. Led better. There we go. <laughs> Colton led better is, like I said, he, I think he's going to be an above average big leaguer. An above average everyday big leaguer. All right, on to the next one. We have Christopher Morrell. Chris Morrell, which is probably what he's going to be known by when he becomes a fairly consistent player in the league. I don't think they're going to keep calling him Christopher. Um, it's, really, it's really long to say Christopher. Yeah, it's a little, you know, just call him Chris. Uh, Chris I, Morrell. I would know. Is, <laughs> yeah, yes, you would. Yes, you would. Goodness gracious. Um, straight over my head. Um, <laughs> goodness gracious. What, what, what are we doing here? Um, he's like, oh, I forget your name. No, I was so locked in on my baseball. <laughs> you thing, were, man. I, I threw like, you off. I completely yeah, threw you I off. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. You're like, oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, um, no, but what I was thinking with Morel is, you know, he's a lot like Ezekiel uh, Duran, who we went over again in the last one. This is a guy who has an absolute cannon of a throwing arm. And he hits the ball insanely hard. And his foot speed is tremendous. And his mental makeup is also tremendous. Um, But he strikes out a ton. I think this is a guy where if you leave him at the big leagues with the mental makeup, the physical skills that he has, he will find his way into being an everyday big leaguer. Even if it's a type of situation where, okay, he's only going to hit lefties. Well, with his speed and his throwing arm and the power, he'll hit lefties for power, and he'll likely be able to handle either center field or a gold glove level right field. And like I said, his mental makeup is fantastic. All of his teammates love him at every level that he's been at. Um, Hopefully for the Cubs, he does something because uh, the Cubs are – they need this year to be a development year. And I don't – my worry is that a lot of their players in their system – aren't ready to be put at the big leagues to develop. They need to be at certain levels of the minors to develop. So if they were going to make this a development year, I think that they should have found a way to bridge things a little bit better, if you know what I mean. So then we got MJ Melendez. Now, you all might remember him from the catching list. I did a catcher's study about a week ago where I compared durability to uh, pitch framing and isolated pitch framing. That was kind of the the key. Um, I compared it to blocking. I compared them to arm strength. Um, And there was a group of catchers that were on the list that I put the numbers up for each of them. Melendez, it's very clear he can't catch. However, 
he would be an absolutely fantastic right fielder because he's got the quick release and he's got the arm from catcher. You put him in right field, you hide him there. You get two center fielders, which a lot of teams are doing anyway. You put him in right field, you let him focus on the bat. Just be natural in the field. Read the ball and then throw it as if you're throwing down to second base. You know, you can bounce it. It's fine. You can set, you can take a moment longer to set your feet than you would be able to if you were a catcher. So shows up on the list because A, I think that's a good conversion. But the other side is he proved at the high levels of the minors that he could walk, not necessarily have to strike out at the most obscene rates and hit for an obscene amount of power as a lefty, which is going to really help him transition and get more comfortable to the big leagues. There's always going to be strikeouts with the profile. And I think there's always going to be tons of walks. I cannot say that he's going to do so well on balls in play, although that will certainly be better with the shift gone. I think you're looking at a three true outcomes left-handed hitter here who, you know, obviously could be much better as a, you know, if you put him in a platoon as a lefty. Um, but also I think that everything kind of plays up here because I do think that in the right situation, there's a possibility of turning him into a weapon of a throwing arm in a corner outfield spot. You just can't ask too much of him range-wise. Just let him read the ball and just throw. And if he can do that, he'll be a weapon out there. Um, and a platoon guy who hits for power and gets on base. Talking about catchers in the outfield, this is going to surprise some people. Some people. Kevin Parada. Now, the first thing... that well, when I first saw Parada in the draft, his draft video, I was like, this guy can probably catch, right? But the more I understand about his ability to catch, he's he's much more workable, okay, slightly below average there than something I'm comfortable with. Do you use him as a backup catcher? Absolutely sure, 100%. And a lot of the time when I talk about guys who you know aren't everyday catchers because of one reason or another, but they can be a backup catcher, a lot of the time it's related to health. That's not the case with Parada. This is a situation where he's young. You know, he's athletic. There's a chance that, again, with the catcher quick release, accuracy, the fact that he'll be able to really set his feet, there's a chance that, similar to Melendez, he might find an above-average defensive home in right field. And given his physical build, he's much more likely to make that transition successfully than Melendez is, despite the fact that Melendez is already in the big leagues. Parada is multiple levels away. Melendez is a lefty and Parada is a righty. Despite those disadvantages, I really think Parada is going to hit. I really think he's going to hit. He is a big league body. He has his own swing too. It's it's very clearly not a swing that other people told him to, to do. It's just a swing that he does that works very well for him that's mechanically sound. Uh, meaning he's the one that's taught himself to hit. You know, this is not something that was implemented for him, not your typical, you know, get me over swing. No, he he created this one. Um, so I think he'll hit. Um, he's with the Mets right now, and given that Alvarez is in their system, he's not, he's not going to be their catcher. I sincerely doubt that he'll ever play catcher for the Mets, which means either he's a trade chip or he's going to be either a corner outfielder for them or first baseman for them, which is possible with Alonso slowing down at some point, moving over to DH. But right now, where things stand, the best hope that he has 
to be a well above average defender is currently just currently right field. Although if he proves he can really hit first base, maybe in the cards down the line, but just being careful about things. Um, you want you really want to have a bat first at first, you know, in the right now field, you can platoon things and you can make a throwing arm work. You can't really do that at first. Um, you have to go with a bat. Otherwise you're wasting the spot. Um, Carrie Carpenter. Carrie Carpenter. Now, this was a guy who, when I first heard about him, I was like, oh, that, that must be, you know, a polished first player. And he is. But I didn't realize just what type of polish this guy could have. You know, there's, there's some guys who, they're, they're very polished in the high minors. So instead of having one good year and then falling off, they can kind of stretch it into two, maybe three. Some people, because of the juiced ball year and the shortened season and you know, the shift going away, have been able to stretch things out much farther. Um, he's going to be one of those guys that can stretch things out a couple of years. And he is lefty with a very similar swing to Brandon Nimmo. <laughs> Excuse me. I think that this guy's going to give protection to the middle of the order of Detroit, to Torkelson, Baez, and Riley Green. And I think he's going to hit this year. If Colt Keith ends up coming up to the big leagues and contributing as well, um, Detroit's going to have a lineup. This is why I have right now Detroit finishing ahead of the Guardians uh, in third place. You know, don't don't shoot the messenger. Third place still. I just am down on the Guardians. But we will do our own podcast talking about the projections divisionally uh, sometime in the next couple podcasts. You know, so definitely, you know, keep out, keep an eye out for that one. Um, but yes, both Colt Keith, which you know, both of these guys that weren't on the other list, or you know, they were on the list, but they weren't mentioned the other day with those players. Um, both of them, Detroit. Keith right now is a third baseman. I don't know if he's going to be able to stay there, but I do think that he will hit enough where if you add him to Carpenter, Green, Torkelson, Baez, the Tigers are going to have a middle of the order that can hit and hit for power. Like I said, definitely more than I can say for the Guardians. Um, So both of those guys show up. Colt Keith is a few levels behind Kerry Carpenter, um, but both are guys that are just, it's all hit tool, power tool. 55s and 60s, things like that. 55 hit tool, 60 power, or somewhere within that balance for both of them. Um, Carpenter's going to be on the team now. I think he is already on the team opening day. Um, Colt Keith probably will join them sometime in July, early, mid. Um, Then we have, oh, Taylor Ward. Taylor Ward who is a very good hitter for the Angels. A lot of people think that, you know, oh, he's going to be, you know, a number three hole hitter. No, 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 no. He is a adequate defender. He's not going to kill you on the bases. He's not going to be good. There might be some seasons he kills you on the bases, but there's going to be some seasons where he's just fairly neutral. He is a safe bet to be healthy. He's not going to kill you in any sort of way. He will walk. He will hit for enough out-of-play power to say that he hits for out-of-play power. And he will hit for well above average in-play power, making him an extremely safe is one word. Reliable, that's the word. 
an insanely reliable player. He's going to be healthy. He's not really going to kill you on defense, not really going to kill you most of the time on base running. He's going to hit balls consistently out of play. And on balls he hits in play, he's consistently successful on those too. So a pitcher can't exactly throw him one in the strike zone. That's a good pitch and think that he's not going to hit a single off of it. So, yeah, I think that Ward is – he's needed with the Angels because they need to have a longer middle of their order. With Urshela coming in and uh, Renfro coming in and healthy Anthony Rendon with Trout and Otani coming off the WBC, I think this is the chance for the Angels to really make a push. And even though Taylor Ward, for all intents and purposes, is a mistake hitter, he doesn't miss any mistake or anything coming close to a mistake. Um, I think we got a couple of years of him at least being a guy who's going to bat 250 with 25 home runs and a good on-base percentage while staying healthy. Much more of the type of guy I'd rather have to balance other guys out than to just be a guy who mashes on his own. But you're still looking at a championship player who will show up in big ways and big moments the way you want. Um, so that's Taylor Ward. You know, he produced at a high levels in the minors. And people started doubting whether he'd be able to do it in the big leagues. And then all of a sudden it transitioned because they got him enough big league time. Um, Brian Anderson. Now, I had a friend of mine who's been rallying so hard for me to include Brian Anderson. I see you, Justin. Um, he's been rallying hard for me to include Brian Anderson. And I can't say that I think that Brian Anderson's really going to hit righties. But what I thought about was this multi-position versatility. Yes, it's a thing, but it's rarely a thing at third base and corner outfield. And, you know, in my studying, that's kind of an anomaly. You know, it's how do you get that to, to work for you? You know, like, like, okay, well, if you move them to a corner outfield spot, well, you can bring in a third baseman, but it's much more valuable having a third baseman than it is having a corner outfielder. But if you put him at third base, he doesn't hit enough to be a good, you know, to, to compete with everybody else at third. So instead of seeing him as positionally versatile, I kind of viewed him as lost. However, because that's not really a common combination, there is the value that in certain constructed rosters, he fits like a puzzle piece. As in, even though it's not a common thing, it might be what a certain type of roster build really, really needs. It is a skill. Being able to both play third base and right field in that it's uncommon makes the skill more important. Separately from that, will he hit lefties at minimum? Yes. And the big thing that pushed me over the edge is when he is in right field, he has one of the best throwing arms in any outfield corner that I've seen in a very long period of time. So he may not be able to hit righties, but if you can hit lefties, you don't really have injury issues. You can play third and corner outfield. And when you're in the corner outfield, you have a howitzer for a throwing arm. Uh, it's enough of a combination of skills where not only could you fit it into a championship lineup, and okay, maybe he can't hit righties, but you put him next to a lefty who can hit righties. And then all, of course, the individual skills. I think that if you can build the team that supports him the right way, the value that he puts out there is a perfect balancing piece for the bottom of the lineup. 
You want to go lefty-righty at the bottom, um, and he's the righty that could balance out the lefty. So, Justin, there you go. I didn't do it because you said it, though, okay? Let's just be honest about that. <laughs> I listen to people, okay? But I have to balance it you with do, the logic. You do. Still, you know, he did talk to me about it, so it's not like I'm just going to say it and not be like, oh, you know, I – I thought of that on my own. No, we were talking about him, and that spurred my thinking. Hey, Justin, you, I know you still – Justin, uh, I don't want to be talking to you the whole podcast. You think he's going to hit more than me, and that's fine because even if he doesn't hit like that, he's still worthy of being on here based off of the merits that I just described. Then we have – now, this is an interesting one. He's been playing second base because you know the Cardinals have a lot of outfielders. I think the best spot for this guy is to put him in a corner outfield spot. I'm talking about Nolan Gorman. Now, Nolan Gorman, at one point in time, he was a third baseman coming through the minors. And he was very young for his level, and he always was very aggressive. And he always struck out a lot, but it always came with mountains of power. And that's kind of the case at the big leagues, too. He's been getting into baseballs like nobody's business, hitting balls insanely hard and striking out at a really high rate. Um, the power that he's hitting for is completely legitimate. If you see what he's built like and you see his swing, it's obvious that he's going to hit the ball hard. And as an aggressive hitter, everything plays up because he's swinging at more pitches, which means he's not working to mistakes to get to what he's doing. He's doing this off of tough-to-hit pitches. Um, I think the more years that he spends in the big leagues – the more he's going to recognize what he should swing at and what he shouldn't swing at. The more the strikeouts will go down, the walks are going to go up. And I think he could turn himself into one of the better lefty power hitters in the league, at minimum put himself in a platoon. And I think that is going to help the St. Louis Cardinals get as far this year as perhaps the World Series. Hint, hint, check in with our divisional breakdowns and playoff predictions. Then I think I think there's a possibility that Gorman could be a household name by the end of the year. Okay, now talking about Joey Gallo. Now I am not a Joey Gallo fan. Okay, um, I think that if you're a guy who only succeeds in certain environments, that I can't trust you in big moments. However, Gallo, I'll put his name right here. Fit it in between. Gallo has one of the better throwing arms of a corner outfielder in the sport. A insane number of assists on a year-to-year basis, and the highlights are they're a gorgeous thing to watch. They make me want to throw. <laughs> that, that, they're that good. The highlights are that good of him throwing guys out. He's got fantastic range. A lot of that is because he's a very strong and athletic six foot four. So, you know, he, he covers a lot of ground when he's running, but he's got fantastic range. No injury issues. He's going to walk. Um, before he was a Yankee, he was grounding into double plays at one of the lowest rates in all of baseball. And that rate's going to go, that's only going to go down without the shift. He's also deemed to be one of the hitters that is hurt most by the shift. So the shift going away and him not being in New York, both of those things are going to help. Um, now, he doesn't make a lot of contact. That's the thing with Gallo. He just doesn't connect. His batting averages are routinely in the high 190s, 180s, 170s. Now, with the shift going away, I could see him maybe get it up to a 210. 
And that, that means a lot, you know, talking about a guy like him, maybe 215. Um, but if you are able to run the bases, like, okay, so you can't do good in New York. If you can run the bases and you can get on base and you can play gold glove level of defense where you don't have an issue with throwing or an issue with range, where you get on base a lot for your good base running. And when, if you do make contact, you hit it into the stratosphere. Um, I think at any point in time, Joey Gallo could walk out of bed and turn into a pumpkin and never be able to make enough contact to do anything with anyone, any team ever, anywhere. Um, however, until it's official that we've hit that point, Gallo has to show up. You know, he did terrible in New York, but with all of the factors that are going in his favor and who he was before last year, I'm going to try and take my Yankee blinders off just look at the player instead of looking at the experience. I think because of that, Joey Gallo does deserve his shot back on the list for one more year. It's like Hanna said, you know, we were talking about Yankee fans, how Yankee fans love LeMahieu right now, even though LeMahieu's not done anything the last two years. And they hate Donaldson, even though Donaldson's only had one down year his whole career. And Donaldson's contract's going to be up after the year. And Hanna had, had this point where it's like, it seems like fans of, of a team, if the player comes in and does well, you know, the player can have some more down years and the team will still think they're the fans of the team will still think that they're going to do well. Whereas if a player comes into the team and immediately does not do well, well, then all of the fan base is immediately like, oh, well, they can't do anything. And I think I might have even been suffering from a little little bit of that with Gallo, whereas just because he did really badly with the Yankees, I mean, I don't think it means that he's a bad player. And I think he's going to probably do really well for at least a couple more years in some sort of role. You got to remember, even if he's not an everyday player, he's got a lot of other uh, versatile uses, defensive replacement. People forget, you know, he came up from the minors playing third. Maybe you get him a spot start there. I know he can play first. He's done it a bunch. So you can move him around. He's a lefty. So maybe you put him in a platoon. You can use him as a pinch runner because he's fast. You can use him as a pinch hitter. If you have a pitcher who's wild and who is a righty, uh, so maybe he'll walk, you know, like he'll have some sort of capacity of being a big leaguer for, for many years, even if he's not an everyday guy. But for now, while he still could be anything close to what he was before he was a Yankee, the dude's got to show up as much as like, it, it irks me, man. It makes me uncomfortable. It's eh, you know? Um, all right. So last few guys that we weren't able to really get around to on the last one. And I'll try to move fairly quickly with this. Um, first off, Pete Crow Armstrong. Awesome name. Awesome name. Fantastic defender. Makes contact at, a, at an obscene level. Great batting eye, so he'll walk has recently changed some swing mechanics and is growing into uh, more power. Right now, he's looking like a five-tool player. Um, the real question is, is he going to be more of a batting average guy or is he going to be more of a power guy? I'm leaning on the power side, but it's it could go either way. And no matter which way it goes, he's still going to show up on here because at worst, you put him in a platoon and he's uh, literally gold glove defensive center fielder. I do think he's going to hit, though. I think that you're probably looking at, you know, 430 slugging, nothing really crazy. 
slugging wise, but he's going to get on base. He's going to walk and he's going to hit at least 285, maybe up to 300 um, with plus plus base running where he could steal 35 bases a year uh, and elite gold glove uh, defense in center field. You're looking at a stud for the, for the Cubs. Um, another thing I want to name about him. There was a, a movie back in the day. I forget whether it was the one where the kid was managing a team or whether it was the one where the kid was playing and he was able to throw really hard. One of those baseball movies. Well, the mother of that kid is Pete Crow Armstrong's real life mother. So he's been connected to baseball since possibly before he was, I'd imagine before he was born because, uh, you know, I'm 30. He's a lot younger than me. And that movie came out. Well, yeah, before I was born. So yeah, he's had baseball in him quite literally before he was born. Literally. That's wild. I love that. That's a great story. Um, so yeah, Pete Crow Armstrong. Uh, this is a great one. Sal Relic. And it's not short for like, you know, no, he's Italian. Sal Freelich, he is Italian. He played for Team Italy. He did pretty pretty darn good. He's a very unique athlete. Moved through the minors unbelievably fast. Great batting eye. Doesn't really strike out. Uh, left-handed hitter. Uh, runs the bases like a madman. Probably going to be more of a left fielder moving forward. But when he was in college, he was a quarterback. Like you, When you see people go from, from football to baseball in college, you know, usually you got guys who can run and whatnot. No, he was a quarterback. Um, and I think he also played some basketball. So, you know, all things being said, being exclusive to baseball is a very uh, relatively new thing for him. And yet he still crushed everything in the minors, through the high minors. I think he's now playing every day for the Brewers. I know that they brought up Weimer which means he's probably already up. I know Mitchell's already up, and that's, you know, three of the four horsemen for the Brewers, with the fourth being uh, Bryce Terang in the infield, as far as rookies go. Um, but yeah, Freelich, despite being a quarterback, because he was a multi-sport star, and he does seem to be getting better and better and better, um, I think he could be much better than he currently is. But right now, what he looks like is a less fast, although not insanely less fast because he is very fast he reminds me a lot of brett gardner like a lot of brett gardner the the the, the swing mechanics the eye uh the fielding just across the board body type everything reminds me of brett gardner now gardner started off a lot faster than him but gardner also spent a lot more time in the minors than him repeating a lot of levels he would go to a level be okay and then repeat and be great and then go to the next level that's how gardner slowly ascended through the minors um so, yes, Freelick. Now we have, this is a great one, Miguel Blias. Now, this guy's in Boston system. I've heard great things about him. The scouting report is insane. There's no possible way with the scouting report that I could keep him in any sort of sane way off of the list. Okay, it's that insane of a scouting report. Okay, however, the last video that I had of this guy was two years ago. Okay, I have no clue what he looks like right now. So I'm basing everything off of one of the most insane scouting reports for a teenager, for a teenager on the international market of anyone on the top 100. 
So even though I've, I saw him two years ago, so I get an idea of the swing in the body, I'm really excited about seeing what it looks like right now, given the fact that, like for all intents and purposes, they're saying he's going to be a five-tool center fielder. And not with too much hit tool risk, which is kind of the big thing. Um, if you're looking at international players, I mean, that's kind of the big risk is that the hit tool will never develop because a lot of uh, international players, they have really good hitting mechanics, but it takes a while to get to the point of being good hitting mechanics. The point of going from, uh, you know, the, the point of loading to making contact is very inefficient, despite the fact that after and through the contact is great swing mechanics. So given the fact that there's not a hit tool risk with him, again, I feel obligated to put him on here. Um, like people are easily saying, oh, he's easily one of the best 50 prospects in the sport. It's like, okay, wow. You know, th there's not very many people in the top 50 position players uh, or, or the top 50 prospects of, in the sport who are position players uh, who don't show up on the list. So he kind of has to. Um, I've been waiting for this. James Outman. We got a James in the league, a center fielder James. We got in the Chris league. and a James. I'm so happy. I mean, I, there's 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 another we talked about in the last recording that we did called James Wood, but you know, this dude's in the big leagues. You know, so it's one thing to oh that guy's he's six foot seven and he's a center fielder in the minors. Okay, cool, whatever. But this is a James in the big leagues getting it done. Now, what is he? Well, he's a platoon player. He's not going to hit lefties. Okay. Well, can he play good center field defense? Well, yeah. Okay. Well, what what's the yeah? Well, he doesn't make contact. He doesn't. However, he walks a ton. And whenever he does make contact, both in play and out of play, it's absolutely insane. So what we're hoping is putting him in a platoon would create a situation where what you can end up doing is um, deal with the strikeouts because they're going to be a little bit better when he's facing righties um, because everything else that he's giving you plus center field defense, a left-handed bat for the better side of the platoon, good base running and a high walk rate. I think he's going to give you what you want. That being said, this is the type of guy, polished first player, where two years from now, he could be absolutely nothing. But because of the players that he, the, the, sorry, the skills that the player has, um, the player does have, which is he does have base running and he is a lefty. That could keep him in the league longer, similar to Mike Yastrzemski, who had a good two and a half years before the fall off. Although it's worth mentioning that those two and a half years were buoyed by a juice ball year and a shortened season, but the same idea. Outman could last a little bit longer just by, you know, being lefty and being fast. Uh, you can platoon him, you know, you can play him in positions where you need speed. He, he'll have a role in some sort of way. Then we have Alec Thomas. Right now, he's the center fielder of the Diamondbacks, top prospect, zoomed through the minors. His bat's not ready for the big leagues. But last year, he was one of the best defensive center fielders in all of baseball, and he is very young. He's got enough time for his, his bat to, in theory, catch up at the big league level. 
However, he may have to fill out or change his swing mechanics because they're a little too violent. And I don't mean violent in a way like Bryce Harper. I mean uncontrolled. He's not going to be able to square it up as much as he should be able to. Um, but given his base running, given his age, given the defense, given the fact he's a lefty, um, he's got a great idea of the strike zone. He was a top prospect, and his father was a coach. Like across the board, he should develop the ability to drive the ball, even if he's not going to hit it all this year. He'll be a great defender, great base runner, uh, but the Diamondbacks shouldn't expect very much offense out of him. Estuary Ruiz. This is a guy in the minors who basically at every level coming up, people were like, well, he's really fast, but I don't know if he's going to do anything else. Well, last year he lit the high minors on fire. So if that means that he can even hit at a league average level at the big leagues while being a plus defensive center fielder, which that's what it looks like. He could probably steal about 40 bases this year, 45 bases this year with the new changes. So if you're looking at a guy who's a okay hitter, at least versus lefties, Plus defender, doesn't have to be elite, who's stealing 40 bases while being a league average hitter. That's going to be one of the, ten, the 100 best players in the sport. It's going to be one of the 100 best players in the sport. Okay, last two. Let me make sure it is last two. I'm pretty sure it's last two. It is last two. Awesome. So we have Estevan Gloria. Now, Esteban Florial was just designated for assignment by the Yankees, which means either they're going to get rid of him or they're putting him in a trade. Now, I think he's going to get put in a trade because the Yankees aren't that stupid. Florial needs everyday at-bats to adjust to the big leagues. Boone is never going to give him everyday at-bats. The best thing that could happen to Florial is for him to go to a team that could give him everyday at-bats and then have him pan out for them. He has no more minor league options left, so it's not like the Yankees can put him back in the minors. And this is why I have so much faith in him. This was a guy who, when the Yankees first got him internationally, before he even became, you know, came stateside, Cashman was already getting calls from other teams asking for him in a trade. Cashman said it was the only time that he'd been asked for a guy in a trade who hadn't even been stateside. Then there was a bit of an issue because uh, after you know he ended up coming over, um, there was a birth certificate issue. And usually when we hear that, it's like, oh, you know, he said he was the wrong age. No, his mom wrote the wrong name on the birth certificate. So because the name was different, Yo, he got suspended. hilarious. That's crazy. That what a crazy mistake. If it wasn't getting suspended, he was kept out of out of games for that period of time. Um, then there was a leg injury that kept him out. He only had one leg injury, from what I understand. And then he broke his wrist on a hit by pitch. And the wrist required surgery, and his swing mechanics were not exactly the same coming back. However, when you add in the fact that there was no minor league season in 2020, Florial should not have been in AAA when he was in AAA. He should have still probably been in AA, spent the whole season there. Instead, he spent two years in AAA. Now, if you look at how he did each year in AAA, he didn't have pull power. He didn't have power out of play his first year. He did the second year. 
but it wasn't as observable because even though the ISO was higher, you got to remember the Yankees AAA ballpark. It, it's 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 not a hitter's ballpark. It, it is very hard to hit for power the way you would at the big leagues in that ballpark, which means the fact that Florial's batting average on balls in play was so high. Sure, you could say some of that was luck, but some of that was balls that hit the wall that should have gone over. So I think he proved that he could hit in AAA, which means all he needs now is a full season every day at the big league level. And that's just looking at just those numbers. Separately, what's his skill set? Well, he's like 6'3", 6'4", huge frame, so he's going to be able to put on more muscle as he gets older. can run like a deer, um, whose throwing arm uh, by professionals, uh, some professionals say that it's the strongest throwing arm or one of the strongest throwing arms that they've ever seen. So if you're a guy who's a center fielder and you know you can run like a deer and you're six foot four and you can throw as hard as anyone in recent memory can throw in any memory really can throw from the outfield and you're going to walk. And certainly he's going to walk and you're a left-handed hitter, which means you have the platoon advantage. So if you don't hit lefties, you can still play every day and get your reps in, in a platoon role. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll get 480 at bats. It's a full season and he would never have to face lefties. So you could just adapt facing his strong side. And is this a guy who hits the ball hard? Ah, Yeah, he absolutely clobbers the ball. Uh, Is he going to have strikeout issues? You bet. But it's more because of the wrist injury than for any other reason, which means if you can't beat him in that one spot, it's going to be very hard for you to get him out. Now, it's a lot easier to beat him in that one spot if you're a lefty. Like I said, he's not going to hit lefties. But if this is a guy who hits righties, even league average, you put him in a platoon, he's league average. And on the basis, let's say he slows down as he gets bigger. So instead of being a, you know, a five BSR guy, let's say he's a two BSR guy. And let's say he slows down so he's not able to play center field. So you put him in a corner outfield spot. Okay. Well, then you're looking at a guy who's a league average hitter, who's slightly above average base runner, who is a gold glove defender in a corner. And that's the worst that you're going to get. I mean, come on. So. I think that it's ridiculous that this guy is even being thought of as a guy who won't be able to play every day. Because even if things don't work out, even if he's not as fast, he's still more than fast enough. Even if he fills out so he can't play center field defense, he's got an 80-grade throwing arm. That's a gold glove right fielder. You know, even if he doesn't hit his handedness, it's not like it's a righty where most pitchers are righties. Or, you know, since most pitchers are righties, as a righty, you're going to struggle. He's a lefty. Most pitchers are righties. That plays into his advantage. So even if he just hits, he doesn't do anything versus lefties ever. And he doesn't do anything, you know, more than league average. Or, or you know what, heck, he doesn't do anything more than 5% below league average versus righties. With all of his other skills, he's still a top 100 position player. And that's what drives me up a cliff because – the only reason that the Yankees could have for, for getting rid of him is that they don't think that giving him an everyday role with the Yankees would make him a contributor by the playoffs. That's the only thing that I can think of. 
Because right now, you're not really going to get that much in return for him in a trade. The best thing you could do, given the fact that you have Aaron Hicks in left field, the best thing that you can do is put him in left field. But, you know, Aaron Boone wants to put Cabrera there because Cabrera impressed in spring training. So instead of using Cabrera to rest other players, let's play Cabrera every day and then allow IKF to bat every day because now that's the guy who's going to, you know, give everybody a day off. So now instead of having an eight-man lineup, you have IKF and Trevino back-to-back. I'm sorry. Had to do a little bit of event there. I hate the way Boone structures lineups. He finds a way to take eight-man lineups and make them five-man lineups. But I think that's part of the reason why Florial's gone. And I really wish that he would stay. I'm hoping that they can pull him. Uh, they designated him for assignments, so maybe they pull him off waivers or something. I don't know. I'm just I'm praying that they bring him back. Um, it's just it's going to look really bad in about a year and a half when, what he's going to do when he leaves. Oh, okay. So. Lastly, and this is the end of the outfield part of the list. Actually, this is two sides of it. First, I'm just going to write his last name because we all know him. Christian Yelich. Um, Definitely getting worse every year. Similar to Longoria. Still going to slug over 400. Similar to Longoria. Longoria is going to be able to play a good defensive third baseman or third base. Yelich is not going to be able um, to play uh, a good defensive outfield. However, Yelich can run the bases and is a lefty, and Longoria can't run the bases and is a righty. I think that if you can flip Yelich between hiding him in a corner outfield spot and getting him some reps at DH in a platoon, minding that he's a lefty, I think you get one more good year out of him. It's the only reason why he's showing up. He has as good of a reason to show up on the outfield list as he does to show up on the DH list, just to be clear. And lastly, Robert Hassel Jr. Robert Hassel Jr. uh, is a potential five-tool outfielder that was sent from the Padres over to the Washington Nationals. After going to the Nationals, he didn't particularly do too good. But is he going to walk? Yeah. Is he going to strike out? Probably around league average. Is he going to hit lots of balls over the fence? No, his swing is not geared to pull the ball. However, I've not seen very many hitters whose swings are more geared to hit line drives than Hassel. And he's got the physicality where in theory, in time, he will put on more muscle. It'll put some balls over the fence, but I think he's mainly going to be a guy who succeeds off of early career defense, getting on base, hitting for a good batting average, and running the bases. The power that will come along the way is just going to be icing on the cake because he's going to come in, and no matter what, he's going to hit over 10 homers. As time goes on, if he gets up to 24, 23, now you're really talking because he's going to hit above 300, assuming things go right. There is a little bit of a hitch in his swing that worries me. But he's so darn good at just putting things on a line that uh, my comparison for him, if I'm going to give him a comp, is Max Kepler, who I named on the on the last recording. Uh, going to walk, not going to kill you with strikeouts. Should be a good defender in center. Should be a good base runner. Um, I think the difference is Kepler's probably going to hit for more power, and Hassel's probably going to hit for more batting average, unless Hassel gives up 
average to hit for more power, in which case he's exactly Max Kepler, which is not a comparison I've ever heard him being given, but it completely fits. And I've compared him to him for a good four months now. That is the second part, uh, last part of our outfield list. In fact, it's the last part of our total main portion of the list. Our next portion of the list, and hey, look, technically, if, if you like our list and you really want to understand like which guys were on the edge and whatnot, we have prepared a the honor the, the, the group of honorable mentions that are on the edge. And the the way that I structured this, the way that it's it's been structured is we're gonna be putting it in columns of 40. And the last column is the 40, the next 40, the 40 honorable mentions. But when it's posted online, that's how you're going to see it. You're going to see it in columns of 40. All right. So we have, yeah, I think that that's everyone to cover. That's, that's everyone we're covering today. Um, I had to check something real quick because I thought that uh, for a second that we skipped over the left field group, but we didn't. We didn't. I just didn't see that, the, the left field indicator. Oh, we got them oh, all. We all got right. them all. Yeah, we, we, we got them all. This is certainly not the real this – is, this is the last part of the list for all intents and purposes. Really the last part is the honorable mentions part. But you know, if you want to know what the official list is, the guys who made it, the guys who were so good that they forced their way into the conversation, that has been our recordings on this up to date. So I hope that you guys enjoyed it. Definitely stay tuned for that honorable mentions list. We'll see you next time. We'll see Let's you next go. time. Let's go. Let's go.